Welcome to the MS Gym Podcast, where we give you the tools to live life by design, not by diagnosis. I'm your host, Brooke Slick, and here we go. In this week's episode, I'll be sharing my interview with neurologist Dr. Bianca Weinstock-Gutman. She's a professor of neurology at Buffalo University, where her expertise regarding the Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, and her collaborative research as to how EBV relates to MS is extensive and impressive. This interview was originally recorded as part of the MS Gym's 2020 Virtual Thrive Summit, which I had the honor of hosting last summer. While the rest of the world was on lockdown, we were reaching out to experts to share their knowledge in the fields of anxiety, telemedicine, diet, and in this case, the EBV-MS connection. I found what Dr. Weinstock-Gutman had to say very intriguing, to say the least. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us today. We are going to be joined by Dr. Weinstock-Gutman who is a professor of neurology at the University of Buffalo Jacobs School of Medical and Biomedical Sciences, where she directs the Jacobs Multiple Sclerosis Center for Treatment and Research. Her interests are aimed at identifying predictors of disease progression, with the primary focus on genetic and environmental interactions and influences on MS. In 2018, she was honored by the National MS Society with the Impact Award and was recognized for her work in pioneering new therapies and interventions to treat MS, as well as helping to develop a more nuanced understanding of the multiple ways that MS affects patients. And I took a quote from that. It says, it's the combination of her research, patient care, and advocacy skills that made Weinstock Gutman so deserving of the award. So to say that I'm honored to have you on would be a total understatement. I'm so happy to have you here. I found you, I, I'll be honest, be very transparent about my, my past with <laughs> the Epstein-Barr virus. Oh. I've been in the MS game for a long time, first symptom in 2001, diagnosed in 2006. But it's only over the last, say, five years in all the background support groups for MS and throughout the MS community, I keep seeing the Epstein-Barr virus and its connection to MS come up. And I always kind of poo-pooed it. I was like, oh, another thing they're going to blame on MS on. And I just went on my merry way, never really read whatever anybody was linking to a group or whatever. I'd be like, oh, Epstein-Barr again. It's not until recently when I was listening to a podcast interview and somebody said, well, Epstein-Barr is the, the, uh, is at the root of trigeminal neuralgia. Well, I've suffered with it for the last three years, had three surgeries, and they said it's also the root of shingles. Well, it just so happens that every single time I had suffered from the trigeminal neuralgia attacks, I got shingles. So I started looking back through my medical records and I'm like, sure enough, every single time I had shingles. So then I started looking more into it and things just started making sense. So I thought, you know what, since we're going to have this summit, let's give the people what they want. Let's talk about the Epstein-Barr virus and the connection. So I started researching and that's how I found you. And I was absolutely I was hanging on every single word of, of all of your research and all of your papers. And I'm like, this makes total sense. This makes total sense. So I am here to get all the details about the connection between MS and the Epstein-Barr virus. Thank um, you very much. Yeah, we have a great team. And uh, I'm really fortunate to work with a great team that are supporting all our uh, interests. And um, I'm lucky. How did yeah. you get <laughs> Like, why Epstein-Barr? Like, why were you drawn to that as part of your research? So, um, the Epstein-Barr, actually, you're looking on, you know, I'm on this uh, path with MS for almost 30 years. <laughs> and looking over, I don't know if you actually saw, back in, in 1980s or something, the Epstein-Barr was the first time, you know, race that could be possible related to MS. And after then, actually fell. And that's because... And that's because um, the number of patients uh, um, affected by EBV, meaning when we're checking if the infection exists, 
uh, in um, MS patients initially were considered 90% um, and the rest of the population 80%. Uh, so because of very high incidence of infection on the general population, it was lost and re-emerged maybe uh, in uh, early 90s with more and more you know, a detailed assessments and understanding actually what EBV is doing as a virus, as part of the herpes family virus, but EBV is different. And um, as I said, the initial consideration that an EBV was taken away is because still the EBV is not sufficient for a patient to develop MS only through an infection. There are many other elements that may, you know, connect with it, interfere with this, and that is the genetics, the vitamin D, all this environmental, the smoking, all this is what actually shown that may interfere with the way how the host, the, the person, is responding when is infecting to ABV. So it's not sufficient, but it's absolutely one of the triggers. So uh, that is making so difficult to clearly saying that's what it is, that's the only thing. But I don't know if you saw the recent paper that, from GNNP that came out from Germany that actually identified that even the, a very small number of patients were negative. They actually pro perform a much more sensitive measure and they were 100% positive. And they even put it on their, in their conclusion that if a patient is diagnosed with MS and he doesn't have EBV, question the diagnosis. Right. Question if they have MS at all. Exactly. Okay. So, so that is, um, it's, very, it's very important. I think that we're learning even much more with the help of EBV, how the immune system is responding. And eventually, hopefully, we can figure out much better how to prevent it and how to treat it. And what exactly is the Epstein-Barr virus? I guess we should have started with that. So the Epstein-Barr virus is a herpes virus. And the herpes viruses, you know, we have the, also the viruses that provide uh, the shingles, the, 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 the viruses that, that, uh, pr uh, that produce, um, you know, the CMV, the EBV, uh, the other uh, herpes that, um, the, um, the zoster viruses. So, um, it's the, it's, sorry, the, it's the viruses that this family of herpes viruses have um, a different, you know, uh, type of, uh, of uh, developing. It's very difficult to, um, to provide a, a vaccine to it, are changing a lot, and they are producing chronic infections. So um, the EBV also as a um, different type of virus is actually in infecting the B cells. And it was found that when every time we're trying to look on B cells that are immortal, that are not dying, that is the way it's infecting with EBV. So the cells that are infected with EBV that are usually in the lab may become, as we're saying, immortal, that they live forever. But the virus is able to um, close itself into the, the cell and um, you know, not to become uh, active. So that is also often these viruses that uh, can, you know, it's also the viruses from hepatitis, chronic. So there are certain ways when these viruses can you know, encapsulate themselves, stay latent, and not to produce an, um, you know, uh, an active infections, or, uh, but it's clearly changing the immune uh, system. So the EBV, virus resides in the B cells. Correct. And it may or may not remain latent. Correct. Is now, there, yeah. are there triggers, have you witnessed triggers, something that can act like, what can bring on a reactivation of the Epstein-Barr virus? So, Often the reactivation of viruses uh, can be related to any kind of decrease of the immune resistance. Okay. And could be another infection, uh, could be stress. Okay. 
could be um, stress, uh, really psychological stress, but could be stress, anything that maybe a surgery, maybe um, some a trauma, a, a trauma, a, a real of uh, a severe trauma. So anything that affects the the body right. may actually, in a, in a certain significant way, it may decrease all the immune system, and then it's waking up. Okay. And uh, sure enough, everyone is different. There are certain people that are much more resistant and will never have uh, really uh, a severe, um, you know, um, mounting of, of, of an infection or waking up the virus. But there are also um, consideration of the resistance of the immune system, meaning, um, you know, taking medications that decrease the immune system, even steroids or, right. or um, you know, another uh, viral infection, or really the immunosuppressive therapy that we are using, cancer, uh, treatment for cancer, all this can actually decrease the immune system that usually keeps the viruses contained and suddenly they can really extend and take over. So you're saying, because so many MS patients are on um, immunosuppressant drugs, it's during that time that EBV can be, be more active or it's contained during that time? No, uh, meaning that depends. As I said, uh, in general, uh, the disease-modifying therapies um, do have, um, um, you know, c controlling the, the immune system and trying to balancing, especially the very early disease-modifying therapy that we calling them more, uh, uh, you know, uh, type of um, immunomodulatory and not immunosuppressive that really kind of balancing between the suppression and the um, and controlling the, inf in, in the infection. So they are really in the immune system, it's a very, very important to be balanced, to be able, if there is any infection, to be able to control it, but in the same time to downside the overactive part that is happening in MS. So depends on the uh, potency of the disease-modifying therapy. As more potent the medication is, is actually may be associated with um, stronger immunosuppression. So, um, but in general, as we see also even with the potent medication, we don't have so many uh, infection, but they're much higher than the medication that we see that are less potent, and we call it this immunomodulatory. So that is part of it. And you're talking about rituximab, ocrevus. Exactly, often then the alemtuzumab, so, and that's different than the injectable, the copaxone, the interferon. Right. Actually, the interferon has an even higher consideration of, because it's an antiviral. Mm -hmm. The problem on the EBV control is that the way how the virus, the EBV, is sitting into the B cell, uh, that these B cells cannot be really um, benefiting from the interferon treatment. So, they are kind of you know, closed in and, and somehow protected against the benefit of interferon. Uh, in the same time, eventually interferon can affect all the other viruses because they said a viral infection can increase your immune system to fight on and that can wake up it. Right. So if you control the rest of the infection with the interferon, it eventually can also protect us. There were, you know, different studies and, and so on when we looked on the type of... Um, the effect of medication and also on the disease activity, on the relation to EBV. In interferon treated patients, we couldn't see this. And that's because it probably does have a certain control on the rest, maybe not directly on the EBV levels right. and so on, but you do have on the rest that, as you said, can increase the possibility of waking up the virus. Do you attribute Ocrevus and which is the rebranded rituximab, do you, do you attribute its success to thwarting those B cells uh, it's and therefore possible. thwarting EBV? Uh, we uh, didn't, um, you know, the data is not yet there. And we're trying to see how can we actually monitor exactly what you're saying. So let's say 
100% of patients of, with uh, MS have the EBV. Okay. Now the question is, uh, what is the Ocrevus Ocrevizumab is doing, or all this uh, anti-CD20 are doing? So they are, um, you know, killing the, the the B cells. It's certain, you know, type of the, the B cells, not the ones that at the end that produce the antibodies. But the question is uh, really, um, are this effect only on the B cells that are only on the periphery? And that is very well known that it is. But the concern what is coming up now uh, and trying to figure out more is actually the B cells that are already into the brain. We know that this kind of the uh, pseudo follicles, the third type of lymphoid cells that are uh, seen into the brain, uh, you know, the, uh, in the subarachnoid area. So um, we know that this kind of uh, pseudo follicles do have EBV inside it. And that is one of the considerations that may be related to the chronicity of the disease. You have their pockets of the EBV or actually these B cells that can wake up and, and actually not only so, but has activated the cells around it, that the microglia, the astroglia, that um, may become, you know, chronically uh, inflamed that, and further on bring to the progression of the disease and the chronicity of the disease. So the question is, are this medication, the B cells that we're using now, able to control not only the B cells from periphery, but also have an effect on the B cells that are already into the brain? So that is the consideration. And it's the stages, because we know that this, so the follicles of the B cells that are uh, in, uh, in the brain, uh, actually in the PIA uh, area, subdural, uh, they are increasing in number with the disease duration. Hmm. As the disease progresses, they're That's increasing. Right, 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 right. Okay. Now, tell me about how Epstein-Barr evolves or can evolve to become mononucleosis. And do people who have been diagnosed with mono in the past are they more likely to ultimately move on to, to having MS? So the issue is that um, the infection can be, with EBV, can be at different uh, ages. Generally, it's during the childhood, and no one knows the infection is going on, meaning the um, immune system is strong enough to control the disease, the control the infection. The virus is coming, you are in contact with the virus, but the virus after then is contained. And the only way to know that the virus was there, or is there actually, because I said there remains there, is to see that you have antibodies. But it's not, they didn't provide any kind of um, clinical symptoms or very mild, uh, you know, upper respiratory, and no one knows. However, what's happened with mononucleosis usually coming in the adolescence is related to a delayed infection. So we consider this, and this is also a consideration on the um, theory of hygiene hypothesis. We're keeping our kids too clean and, too, and not exposed to environment, and therefore they are not in contact with EBV. Infection with CBV, as I said, in adolescence, if they were not before, it's, it's very, very strong. And then you have this mononucleosis with lymph nodes, swollen and uh, fever and so on. And that is only suggesting that the EBV contact with the immune system at this stage, it's a very hard. And the response from it, it's changing in a so way, the immune system and the way how the B cells are responding and the B cells and the T cells, that because it's not only the B cells, it's, it's a lot of the relation between the B cells and the T cells. The ones that are really destroying there are the specific T cells, the CD8 T cells. So the problem is that these T cells may not, you know, see the, uh, the EBV within the B cells, so, uh, but it's also this storm 
that comes up at this age with with the immune system that's already stronger than in childhood and all the modification to it is actually suggesting that only is putting on together the base for developing ms because they are modifying the immune cells in the same direction to a higher risk for developing ms okay so it's primary as i said age related and it's the interaction between the immune system age and the late uh, exposure to uh, to EBV. Okay. Having mononucleosis is increasing the risk to MS two times, absolutely three times. You also see that this is mostly seen also mononucleosis much higher in the area that we have MS. Right. And also in more industrialized and more uh, developed countries where we keep our kids too clean. Too clean. Isn't that something? That's, you know, I've heard that before. I've talked to my mom about that before. And uh, to hear it in this context, it, I mean. You say, why, why did you keep me so clean? Huh? Right, right, <laughs> right, exactly. I, and this is a quote from one of, the, one of your papers. It says, recurring clinical relapses mm-hmm. can be associated with inadequate control of EBV reactivations. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? So, um, as I said, uh, in general, if the EBV is reactivating, uh, that's we, you know, sometimes it, the best way to evaluate is the shedding of the EBV, for example, saliva and so on, because they're sitting on, on your tonsils and so on. But um, we don't do so much on it, and there's also for a short time. So most of the time when we're measuring is actually the antibodies to the virus. And we can try to uh, identify, you know, certain type of antibody. There are many antibodies, but there are early antibodies and late antibodies based on the reactivation. So we can try to figure out based on this if we have a, you know, a reactivation of the virus now or in general, because most of the study that we did, um, and many of them were cross-sectional, is that we're measuring the level of the uh, antibodies. MS patients even uh, do have uh, much higher antibody levels than the healthy controls. So if you're looking on the way how the immune system in MS patient responding to infection is different than the way how the healthy controls are responding to infection. So that is where everything is started. Now, if we have it was you know, identified that this eventually increasing in, in the level of viruses could be seen also during uh, or preceding the acute events. That could be, but it's very, there were not many studies during this. So mostly what we looked on is that presence of active enhancing lesions. Right. Studies. So most of our studies that looked on this was also on the um, data we have from uh, a Czech Republic study that had all the patients uh, uh, with the first initial event of CIS treated with interference. So the problem over there is that they were treated with interference. Yeah. So we didn't see so much uh, uh, correlation uh, uh, with the active enhancing lesion. They were, we see this with much more with the CMV levels, but um, it's clearly showing that, you know, uh, an infection and uh, often, as I said, if they did check, not we didn't check any, as I said, um, uh, EBV presence of the PCR, uh, what we call in the shedding, uh, preceding or before the, uh, the infection, that it would be much more specific. But we are monitoring the different type of antibody, we can determine that indeed there is a certain changes and reactivation of the, of the virus. But most of our data is really based on um, measurements on the level of um, antibodies. And uh, we do see that the higher level were associated with more um, active disease. But mostly, as I said, because we have most of our data on cross-sectional, on patients that um, are um, evaluated, you know, chronic, we do see actually uh, atrophy and loss of tissue. That usually is a process that is um, actually more delayed from the time of the acute inflammatory process. As the inflammatory process is more severe, 
in a longer time, within six months, one year or more, you'll see much more um, you know, tissue loss. So that is mostly what we identified in most of our studies is uh, including the clinical isogenic syndrome initial study from, um, from uh, Czech Republic uh, on interferon that uh, with a higher level of uh, antibodies to virus or VCA mostly uh, that is more chronic, we saw much more atrophy of the thalamus is the first one and uh, also of the total uh, uh, brain uh, volume. So um, the correlation between the disease activity, the inflammatory process, and longer time after then loss of tissue, it's very, very important. And now we learning more and more on how to correlate. And there is a little bit, uh, you know, um, not a perfect connection between, you know, especially if we're doing something and what is now tried in different studies is between the inflammatory process and the um, uh, loss of tissue within one or two years may not see a perfect uh, correlation. In a longer time, we do see that it's more inflamed and if it's not controlled in uh, uh, two years or uh, you'll see much more tissue loss. And that is primarily related to, to limited physical disability, but also cognitive issues. Do you ever think we'll see a day when, because I know, it, you know, let's say I've had MS for five years and I start having relapses. Anytime I had relapses in the past, the first thing they go to is the MRI. And sometimes, sometimes they correlate, new symptoms correlate with new lesions, sometimes not at all. Do you think there will ever be a time when they say, just as part of regular practice, well, Let's check their their if to see. Let's check on their EBV. Let's see if it's reactivated. Um, and it, and it, if they did, that is the interesting. Uh, that's a, that's exactly. It's only a response to as you see when you have uh, you know the issue. What you said when you have your trigeminal neuralgia, you do have um, uh, a zoster infection, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, it's all to, when do you have usually a zoster infection when your immune system is going down? What was the trigger first one? You are stressed, you had other things that we never know. Right. And that is actually, and also we have to, you know, you're young, but, <laughs> but that is another that, that we can discuss further is, and there's a lot, and we are very much involved on it, is actually the aging population. Aging population has, a decrease in immune resistance. And um, it's this term of immunosenescence. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, we don't have a perfect correlation between the biological to chronological age. But this is a fact. With the time go on and aging, there is an immune suppression. This is why aging population have a higher risk of zoster infection. Right, shingles and... Shingles and so on. So that is the issue is, so then it's all the time, to, but in the same time, they have a less risk for relapses or new lesions. But if it happens, the repair processes are less efficient. Got because it. the production of the myelin from the oligodendrocytes and repair are less. So we have an in and out, so it's not only one process. So um, with the time go on, as I said, if there is any kind of factor that decreases your immune resistance, um, you know, EBV can go up, but the question, what was it? You may have maybe urinary tract infection before. Right. That's something starting on. So it's very difficult and it's much more complex. It's not only one event. This will come up, as I said, uh, because all the immune system is kind of dysregulated. Something happened, and again, it could be even only a stress. The balance is off. That's correct. And then anyone that was sleeping, now it's waking up. So that's the, that it's only an indicator. Now, uh, would we, as you said, maybe well, saying have a factor, looking on, keep going and have the viruses, the antibody levels, and suddenly we see uh, 
uh, jump on, that's it. And you may have said, you know, this is indicating that the EBV is waking up. And I don't need to do an MRI. I know that this will be uh, an issue. It could be. And uh, this is what we're trying all the time to find what we're calling biomarkers. And you know, probably you heard about the serum neurofilaments that now on. And everyone is trying to figure out a you know, more sensitive measure of active disease uh, without the, the MRI. Right. Um, so is there a treatment for EBV? What if, what if I had EBV and I didn't have MS and, and... Yeah, yeah. so there's no, there's no treatment. There's, there's no, no treatment, treatment for EBV and there's no treatment and um, the consideration much more were towards uh, maybe vaccination because each time as actually when we're doing certain assessments and what we're doing a lot, it's only what we're calling an association. We don't have a clear-cut support that what we found it's measuring something with measuring other one and other than correlated is actually calling causality, is it causing. So it's not there. However, the very important study that was done by um, Boston thing a few years ago, probably you saw this, is that um, especially looking on the mononucleosis or EBV infection as relation to MS, that was most uh, strongest is that, you know, uh, this was done using the serum from the military uh, oh, in yeah. release. And uh, they are, anyone that is going in the military, they have blood test at the entry and every six months. Mm -hmm. And what they found is actually that, you know, they found 10 patients that they found out, uh, you know, retrospectively, but went into their serum and so on, that developed MS. So all these patients, they looked on the patient that developed MS, they were negative at entry. They became positive after and after they developed MS. So after then they looked on the same people, this another group, similar in age and so on, that were also negative and after then became positive, but they did not develop MS. So that you have both. And the patient that developed uh, MS all of them became positive because before they were developing MS. And the time between the being negative, and they had blood tests every six months, they become, um, the risk to develop MS was between a year there was, there were two years, and it was one patient even at up to 10 years. So there is a lot of interference in the immune system changes, but that's clearly showing that in order to have MS, you had to have become ABV positive. Okay. Now, sure enough, they've, and as you said, the mononucleosis, that meaning this patient, when, when they're going to the army, they're 18 and above. So they never saw EBV before 18. That is very unusual. So they were not exposed to EBV in childhood, as we said before, it usually happened. And they had it after, and part of them had mononucleosis, part of them, they didn't have the mononucleosis. So they didn't have any symptom of the infection. So they were, what they're trying now to, they tried before, to try to see if they can do a vaccination in adolescents that are still negative. So the study, it was uh, very limited. They did a certain type of uh, vaccine. As I said, it's very difficult to do vaccine for herpes viruses because they are changing all the time. But they did a certain, a certain against the capsules of the EBV. And what they found that actually they were able to postpone, there were, I think, eight cases of mononucleosis versus 11 on not, um, you know, vaccinated. It's very small differences. But actually, they were not able to prevent the EBV infection. So the subclinical EBV didn't have any difference. Okay. They were able to prevent only the mononucleosis that it's not sufficient to consider that this can be really a treatment for, uh, for preventing MS. There are a lot of other um, considerations besides the vaccination. And there are, I think it's actually an ongoing study and so on. And there were initial um, study uh, with a few uh, patients uh, enrolled in, giving actually specific T cells, the CV8, T-cells specific for EBV. That could be actually a good treatment. They used it for um, a secondary progressive effect, actually, and patient did very well. 
so that is the consideration uh, even on how to control the EBV. You need to have the specific T cells that recognize the EBV and they are able actually to interfere and destroy the, the virus that in generally is very well, you know, um, hide it in the B cells. So that's is actually the, the one of the problems to de develop T cells that are able sufficiently to recognize the EBV even in the cells that are, um, you know, keeping uh, the B cells, um, you know, hide it. Uh, in the same time, if the EBV is a very, very long time into it, this cells initially actually it was found that a number of these specific cells uh, with no treatment in MS, it's going up. They're trying to control it. And maybe this is why we don't have this EBV all the time, um, you know, developing because we do have, you know, certain cells that can keep the control. And these are the T cells, the CD8 T cells. But with the time go on, and that is also going back on my now new uh, baby, the aging, these cells are becoming tired. They are overworked. The same is for the CMV and for the EBV. And um, that's actually, again, the CMV is less you know, involved uh, and less known about, but the CMV also, herpes virus, and the connection of both of them may have actually more to do than EBV alone. And the immune cells that are trying to, for a long time, to keep this under control with aging, with the immunosenescence, they are becoming tired. Uh, they are not able to support this control. I see. So we have a lot, a lot of, of, of cells that are able to control. This is why we need a healthy immune system. Mm -hmm. uh, and any kind of intervention is also, the question is, how has this intervention given once given twice and after then give it the rest of the immune system to try to build back that is also things that we are considering are we um, using only a milder medication continuously are we using a stronger medication only unblasted and after then waited for the rest of the immune system to recover if it's you know the same with that entuzumab even ocrelizumab every six months and so on so it's a lot of knowledge that we still have to figure out. And again, the immune system is not similar with everyone and is also not similar in the same person with aging. Right. So that is so difficult to have one fits all. So let me just play devil's advocate here. Let's mm -hmm. say the Epstein-Barr virus didn't exist at all. Mm. Oh, that's a... Uh... What kind of a sign to... <laughs> no, what, what percentage of how many how many less people would ultimately develop MS? Because I know you said that it's not just EBV, that there are, are different factors, cofactors that can lead to yeah. developing MS. I, I don't think that uh, you know uh, that could be um, considered if the EBV wouldn't be uh, would be something else, meaning. I think that, uh, as I said, um, when uh, we're thinking now that actually 90% of the healthy population are also having EBV and they don't have uh, anything, um, we can say that this is the problem, mostly. Meaning it's clearly a very important um, factor that modify already prone and uh, immune system. So the immune system in MS patients, it's, it's maybe different. It's not, it's not decreased. And that is very important also to keep in mind is that never, uh, and absolutely, you know, discuss with my patient, never go on, an, on supplements or something that will, you know, increase your immune system. Right. And I think a lot of people do. They're like, oh, I, I've got to gear up my immune system. Exactly. You know? Don't. It's actually the opposite. So right. the immune system in MS patients are nice. It's good and healthy. Actually, they are working too much in the wrong direction. Right. So if you boost your immune system in a certain way, they actually may have concerned on 
you know, reactivation of this, you know, sleeping uh, bed guys that on the general, you know, status, the rest of the good immune system is able to contain. But if you start to have anything else that is boosting the immune system and right. so on, you may have actually a wrong consideration. And that is, you know, different. Uh, in one side, it can be over um, considered. For example, you know, I'm thinking about zinc. Zinc is actually one everyone is taking on when they have a flu or a cold, right? Because it is boosting the immune system. Yes. It is a concern to take too much zinc in the long term because that may over reactivate for a short time. If you have an infection or something, you can do. So I'm talking only a very small one, you know, element, but there are many, many of them. You can see that they can really ginger, whatever other things that are considered healthy and so on. The question is, if it is considered boosting the immune system, if you're taking long time, if you're taking only, you know, period, uh, very short time when you see that your immune system is down, that is something else. So um, that is also, I do very much support, uh, you know, supplements and so on. I'm much more towards good food and healthy food, but the ones that are very important is really the, the vitamin D and the vitamin B12 and the folic acid. So that's are the ones that really we need to be sure that we maintain in the good level. The rest, it's better to get all the supplements from good food. Mm. So you, you said B12, vitamin D, and folic acid. Yeah. Okay. okay, interesting, interesting. Of course, vitamin D is always out there, but I know, the, and this was probably over 10 years ago, I asked my PCP if I could get a B12 booster shot or something. My mother uh, got them when I was young all the time. And I thought, you know, let, let me just try this. Well, I am telling you, I got that thing, and my symptoms went through the roof. And it's not like a pill that just gets out of your system right away. It, it was like in there for a while. So it was going to linger for a while. So I never had a B12 shot again. Ah. However, now, and I've since, which I didn't tell you, I've had, I had a stem cell transplant seven mm. years ago for my, I had it done in Moscow. I've had no progression since. Um, but I can still, I mean, there are cer even certain foods that I can eat where my fingers will get more numb than usual, or my foot drop will get worse. Um, but I, I want to retry B12 now that I'm at a different point in my disease. Like I want to see, I, I want to test it. Meaning the, the B12 it's, uh, and all the, in general, the bees are very important and, um, the, um, B12 is primarily also involved in myelination. And um, okay. it's um, the question is uh, how much you're taking and how much this is, um, it's, uh, it's used. Um, you know, it could be only symptoms related and relationship to connect with really the uh, repair. It's more, uh, it's more difficult because it takes a longer time. But uh, many of our patients have B12 deficiency when we check it out. And um, so that might be a good place to start is to have your doctor to check, check, the, check the B12. Even on, the, you know, uh, on all the labs now, you know, they have still maintained the norm between 200 and 1,000. And actually, uh, everyone indicating that you have to have above 400. Even if the level are left at the 200, you have to be above 400. So even if we have 250, 300, we are comp uh, adding on um, the, the B12 uh, for, our, for our patients. Yeah, but that, uh, the same for vitamin D. Right. Before, everyone needs a different dosages. So I never recommend a specific, you know, one fits all. It's only based on the... Uh, Your baseline. On the baseline, yeah. So even on vitamin D, we actually also published this and we saw this is not again 100%, but a patient with a good cholesterol, with a good HDL cholesterol, they don't need so much vitamin D. Their levels are much higher. We also found that the patient taking the statins, the lowering cholesterol, they will also increase their vitamin D. So it has to be checked and, and, and set the level based on what you have. Because now came out those studies with vitamin D too much, people 
having uh, uh, bone loss right. and that uh, and you have also the b12 if it's too high and you have kidney problems you have again problems so nothing is too much is not it's good it's all a balance that's correct now another study that i was talking about that uh, was recently we published this is actually with um teriflunomide teriflunomide does have certain uh, antiviral effect and what we found is actually that uh, a certain patient with uh, untreatable teriflunomide actually had a decrease in their EBV antibodies, and we saw actually correlation between preventing. We had this follow-up study on these patients that had less a, um, atrophy, and the patient that had less atrophy were the one that actually had a decrease in EBV uh, level of virus. And what is teriflunomide? Obagio. This is one of them. Okay, I was going to say, what's the brand name? So it's a Baggio. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, that is um, um, EBV was uh, meaning uh, Obagio was showing also having a certain antiviral and in lab for the EBV, we showed that they said decreasing the level of antibodies. Obagio also showed um, actually benefit on patients with um, the family members, you know, the same as PML, the JC virus is the, yes. BK virus, the BK virus. So it had the really benefit on the BK virus. So it does have certain antiviral benefits, and that is why we checked on this too. So, so would, would Abagio be a standalone treatment or a complement to whatever disease modifying? No, Abagio is a medication for MS. So, okay, so it's a standalone. Yep. Okay. And that's how that's how it acts. Like that's how it functions. No, no it's uh, having a, it's working on a certain enzymes, uh, enzyme that and decreasing the division and uh, proliferation of the activated cells. It's a different one. It's um, it was um, you know, Bajo is a teriflunomide. Um, there was it's actually the active metabolite of the leflunomide that is actually a rheumatology. It was called Arava leflunomide for many, many years. So it's an anti-inflammatory uh, product. So as I said, it was, it's very similar with the, um, uh, the leflunomide, the active metabolite uh, that was used for rheumatoid arthritis and it's used for rheumatoid arthritis. So do you have patients that you treat with Abagio? Oh yeah, sure. Meaning we don't use only one medication. Yeah, the only more, uh, the Obagio is, you know, approved to, uh, six, seven years, eight years ago. Uh, it's, um, you know, as compared with the other medications, um, it's not uh, clearly suppressive. It's kind of the first-line therapy. Okay. Um, and um, actually now in comparison, um, for example, the ofatumumab, the newer one, it was compared with teriflunomide, and it is 50% stronger on the very active um, patients. So, uh, but um, again, uh, it's, uh, it's a good medication. Uh, usually we are a little bit more concerned on, um, uh, on pregnancy. So uh, usually I'm not using it for very young people, although we will expect to have the results of, um, of um, uh, using teriflunomide in kids. In children, we have, uh, you know, we do have four or 5% of patients uh, having their initial onset before age 18. Right. In this pediatric MS. And um, we're using everything that we use in adults, but really the uh, only study that was head to head study uh, was with um, Gilenia, with the Fingolimod versus the uh, Avonex, and showing actually, um, you know, benefit, increased benefit versus the injectable. Uh, so uh, the teriflunomide is the second one that we're waiting on the results. Um, the study was completed for kids, uh, and um, that was a, a different design, and that was against placebo. Okay. Moving forward with your research, with whether you're personally involved with it or what's going on in the MS world, what would you like to see in the way of MS research? Epstein-Barr virus related or not? Like, is it... Would you like to mm -hmm. see people digging further into Epstein-Barr? You know, what, what would you like to see right now in MS? You know, the consideration today is um, really first in one side to uh, 
initiated therapy early on, and that is what they're pushing on. But in the same time, it's um, we have to, and there is, you know, there are studies going on trying to really prove or disprove that starting with a much stronger medication earlier on is better than than later, uh, because you're protecting better. But again, at the same time, we never know about the changing on the immune system the risk for the any viruses infection and so on and the side effects like long-term side so effects. it's a long-term effect we do not know but we're getting more and that is in the end evaluating the patient from the beginning and try to identify factors that are associated maybe with more benign disease versus not and i think that that is very important before we going on one fits all and um, you know, in the same patient, you can figure out in the beginning what is the status, but this can change. And this can change with the hormonal changes, with the age. So it's not only the, the beginning, we know that maybe 15% of patients are very, very active. The rest is in between, and we have around 20% are benign. They may not even need medication, maybe. Right. But we this, we don't have a handle on it. So this is why we, recommend treatment for all our patients from the beginning now that we're able to diagnose so early on. Sure enough, if we have a patient coming up on their 50s with having tingling 20 years ago and now they have minimal spots and they are perfect, the question is now at their 60s or upper 50s, do they need really to have a very strong medication when they were able to control so good right. for, for so many years? So. In one side, we have to learn much more about how the immune system is working, changing, and this is why we need biomarkers. And that's, I think, that we have to learn and to obtain different testing, blood, uh, MRI, anything else that can tell us what is going on for this specific patient to be easy to administer, to be reliable, to be sure that if we have a change, we have to intervene. And now it's one when the one that is really the most up there is this kind of a uh, serum neurofilament. There may be another one that is the GFAP, so indicator of inflammation. But they are not specific for MS. Yeah, it's going up also with aging. It's going up for trauma. So it's not specific, but it's something suggesting is something going on. So the question is when we will have this, if we have possible. Uh, I do believe that will be helpful. I won't be able to, you know, figure out clear cut that, as you said, you may see this going up and maybe we won't see the MRI because right. it's so... Uh, so you'd like to see more sensitive testing. That's correct. So more sensitive, but, we, but clearly proven that the changes, because, you know, you may change one or two units, that doesn't matter. So we have to develop uh, biomarkers and that's also including MRIs and blood and so on. But we have also to uh, to um, determine what is the uh, clinical or meaningful change. That could be only a lab change, simply they're doing the same sample and the second time you may have two or three units difference that shouldn't be considered that you have a three, three unit difference, let's change the medication. So that is very, very important before all this, this is why it takes a long time, before something is saying, you know, this above, as we have other testing, you know, when you're measuring different things, this is not good. That is clearly an abnormal. So this is all the, the developing biomarkers or any kind of uh, measure are very, very important and along with the, uh, the treatments before, you know, um, and the research, and we are very much trying to involve on this, is to how to measure from a clinical standpoint, biomarkers and so on that are very, very important to be sure that if we, um, you know, have a change, we can be sure that this change on this element is important. We have to do a change. Or we have to start from the beginning with more aggressive medication uh, or, you know, helping us much more in treating the individual and not kind of a general one fits all. What are you, are you currently working on anything or are you looking, you personally looking to? So, uh, yeah, we are working now. Um, as I said, um, I uh, had a very, and I'm still interested in 
pediatric MS, but now along with my age <laughs> and my patients that are aging, I'm very interested on it. So we're doing a lot on the cognition, trying to differentiate the cognition between MS versus the cognitive changes with all aging. And we're looking also on the biomarkers, as I said, on this uh, serum neurofilaments that are um, we're trying to determine uh, what are the norms for aging. And they're very much because now it's a lot of push towards that an aging population they shouldn't treat with medication we have today, that we don't have a clear cut information. Yet. Only yesterday I had a patient on, on her uh, 58 with three new lesions on the, on the brainstem. So it's not possible to say your 60s stop the medication. Right. And right. there's ongoing data on, on this and we are really um, working a lot on it on, um, you know, on, this, on patients um, over 55 and over 60. Uh, on aging, on everything, on, on uh, MRIs, uh, changes, on cognition, on biomarkers. So, um, and um, any kind of rehabilitation uh, factors, dietary intervention, we are very much on wellness towards this and um, hope that we'll have uh, something. Uh, well, I am going to be watching you. I'm going to be checking back in and Googling for your, your name and your papers because I, I was mesmerized by all of your work, just kind of hanging on every word as I read them because they, you know, they make you think more about the disease you're living with. You know, certain things, you start putting all the pieces together and you, you have a couple of aha moments. And you're like, wow, okay, that, that makes sense. So I appreciate that you're out there every day trying to do everything you can for the MS community and your patients. And I cannot thank you enough for having come on. Sure. Thank you very much for, and um, you know, it's only kind of this feedback that makes me going. <laughs> ah, no, I, it's important. What you're doing is very important because we can't just sit back and hope that these drugs that we're throwing at MS patients are going to get them through. Um, and exactly. That I think future generations are going to expect more. I really do. Like you're, abso you're absolutely right. Meaning I'm going backwards when I was, you know, 25 years younger, and everything was so mesmerizing, as you're saying. Everything was something because we didn't have anything. You know, I I, I was trained initially in Israel, and at that time it came Cupaxin. Yeah, uh, that was before Betacyron, before everything. We were giving I've this. On both of those. <laughs> And this Copaxon, uh, we um, started to use it uh, and give it the so-called an IND for patients all over the, country, the world. And having patients from, from Brazil and so on, that they sold their houses only to come to have this Copaxon and so on. And, and, and it was, and before this, we didn't have anything. And right. still at that time, there was not proven, you know, that, that this is helpful and and many times at that time i was saying to the first patient that i saw that has a mess you know you have a demyelinating disease i wouldn't have the courage to say you have a mess so it's much so much difference and there is no question that that we are much much better after so on but i expect much more to right right we all do we all we're all looking for that magic bullet for that for somebody somewhere to to get it. And, and that's the thing. I think we all hope that it's one thing, but as you've said throughout the conversation, it's a combination. Um, it's uh, also the issue what we're talking about now. It's all the repair and protection. Yes. And, you know, and that will be coming more and more, but in the same time, you know, if we don't have so much information and it's only protection and repair, we have to start to work on this rehabilitation, uh, you know, uh, measures. And that is only being active, socializing, exercising, and, uh, and a good health, meaning good diet, meaning it's very, very important. And I, I'm very concerned when I'm trying to talk to my patient that have fatigue, that really the exercise and so on and very well organized is helpful instead to look for a pill. Right. And, and that is, it's very important for people to understand how important it is, the rehabilitation for cognitive uh, repair and so on. All this can be done with certain, you know, interaction, exercises, yeah. computer things, and not appeal. 
Right. I think a lot of people are just looking for a pill to get rid of the fatigue, a pill to get rid of the spasticity of, you know, they want a quick fix. We all want a quick, quick fix, but I'd rather get to the root of what's going on and work from there up. So, right. But that's good advice. Dr. Weinstock Gutman, thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. Good luck with all your future research. And as I said, I've got my eye on you. Okay, okay. <laughs> thank you so much. You take care and take care of yourself and thank keep you. safe. Thank you. For more information on the MS Gym, you can find them on Facebook. Instagram, or at themsgym.com. If you'd like to know what I've been up to lately, you can catch me at brookslick.com. We'll see you on the next episode.